Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Maybe it won't surprise you to hear that preachers, at least this one, tuck away stories and quotes and anecdotes for use in future sermons. My own filing system is pretty slipshod. I have a few notes on my phone to help me keep track of these things. For instance, on a bus trip in the southwest of England once, we passed through the village of Lyme Regis, which is the home of Alice's Bear Shop and Hospital for Poorly Bears and Dolls. I thought that was about the cutest shop sign I'd ever seen, so I made a note on it, about it when I drove through. Next to that one are reminders of things like that mortality rates go down during recessions and that our daughter once compared the taste of something to pencil shavings. It's kind of a hodgepodge, and now I've wasted several just telling you about the practice of collecting them. But, but I've also been hanging on to a quote for years that may actually be relevant to this sermon. It's been attributed to sources as grand as Plato, but it was actually said by an otherwise forgotten 19th century minister in the Free Church of Scotland. It was the Reverend John Watson who once said, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. The 13th chapter of Luke begins with an age-old moral question, which is, Does God make heavy things fall onto people who do bad stuff? I'm sure you've wondered it yourself. I thought that was funny. The question's about the moral universe and whether or how God is involved in it. We don't get this question explicitly in the passage, but Jesus' response suggests that people were wondering whether the Galileans, whose blood Pilate mingled with their own sacrifices, had brought this horror onto themselves. Jesus says no. And then he goes further. He asks whether the people they, whether, asks the people whether they thought that those folks in Siloam, whom a tower tipped over on, were being punished by God. Absolutely not, he says. But, if you don't repent, you've got the same thing coming. Now this is a little confusing, right? Jesus seems to be saying that God was not at work punishing people in these tragic events. Then he says to his innocent questioners, but you're about to get squashed. Before we decide what Jesus' moral worldview really was, let's pause to notice his first move. Did you see it? He turned the conversation away from those bad folks out there to the people in the conversation. Ouch. I mean, how many conversations have you had about the moral problems of this world that were concerned with people like you and me? When was the last time you heard somebody say, you know, the problem with this world is people like us? Our moral reasoning just doesn't work that way very often, does it? And if we did hear someone saying such a thing, we might recommend Prozac. 
Because it makes perfect sense to think the world's projects can be assigned to skateboarders or stamp collectors, but we expect the stamp collectors to think it's all the skateboarders' fault and the skateboarders to think it's all the stamp collectors' fault. Being a well-adjusted person seems to be making moral sense of the world by looking at other people's messed up lives and priorities rather than our own. Jesus doesn't know any better. And he says, quit worrying about what those Galileans must have done to bring on their misfortunes and pay some attention to the direction your own life is headed. Repent. Turn around. You may be the ones who are headed for disaster. So Jesus seems to be saying that God does not tip tall towers over on people who misbehave, which, as an aside, puts his moral theology in direct opposition to all those Christian preachers who've claimed everything from AIDS to earthquakes to COVID-19 were the results of the wrath of God. But Jesus also says we really can make choices that send our lives in a direction that leads to destruction or a direction that leads to life. We just won't find that life-giving direction as long as we're spending our energies figuring out where other people ought to be headed with their lives. And then Jesus tells a parable. And as you know, it's always in his parables that Jesus takes us deeper into the heart of things. Now, if we read the parable out of context, if we don't read the scene leading up to it about the people from Galilee and Siloam, we'll probably get the parable pretty badly wrong. You remember the story. A certain man planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and the fig tree didn't bear fruit for three years. So he told his vine dresser to cut it down. But the vine dresser said, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, usually it's a cinch that if someone in a parable is called master, that person must be a stand-in for God, right? And I'm not ready to say that can't be the case at all here, but remember, Jesus has just rejected the idea that God was sending destruction on bad people. And the vine dresser, the vine dresser is the one who really steals the parable, doesn't he? The vine dresser is the one who turns the plot of the story when he begs the vineyard owner to give the fig tree another year to bear its fruit. The vine dresser is the bearer of grace, of mercy, of the possibility of new life, not destruction. And it's striking how the first Christians would come to understand Jesus as the one who actually goes and makes intercession for us. We see this clearly in the book of Hebrews, especially, which describes divine judgment as a rigged courtroom in which God has given over judgment to Jesus, but Jesus is also the one interceding on our behalf, the lawyer for our defense, if you will. All of which suggests further that the focus of this parable is not on the impending judgment or the angry judge, but on the vine dresser, on Jesus on the one who makes space for us to bear our fruit into the world. And what a radically different view of the moral life then is is presented in this story. Jesus moved the conversation away from questions about what vices are bad enough 
for God to push a tower over on you for, to an image of Christ, the vine dresser, giving us time, even fertilizer and care, so that the fruit we were meant to bear in our lives can come forth into the world. And suddenly the moral life isn't so much about avoiding vices as it is about practicing virtue. It's about bearing fruit. And it's about realizing that judgment has been put off, that we've been given another year to grow and thrive and produce the gifts our lives were made to give away. In fact, the moral life might first be about waking up to the gift of this present moment that we've just been given by God. And maybe if we can stop obsessing about what's wrong with everybody else's life, we can begin to see what's right with ours. We can see that we were meant to bear something good into this world. But until we turn from our jealous and judging ways, We're wasting the soil we stand upon, just like that fig tree that couldn't produce a fig. Jesus taught that God is not waiting to wreak havoc on people who go astray. But there is an urgency to our lives. And we may have to change course to find the abundant life we're made for. God is involved in the moral universe. But God is involved by opening up a little time for us a little time, a little mercy in which we might bear fruit. And if we waste that time fretting over other people's vices, wondering and wishing about whether they'll get what's coming to them, we may not produce the good fruit we're meant to bear into the world. And if we don't know how to make this turn toward the life Jesus is describing, maybe a first step could be made by scratching onto our doorposts or pecking into our phones or somehow reminding ourselves each day simply to be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.